Gospel, chapter 11, and uh, verse 1. And uh, we're considering again this subject, a great subject really, uh, challenging subject, the subject of Calvinism. And we're thinking about the upside-down gospel of Calvinism. So let's begin in John chapter 11 and verse 1. It says, Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sisters sent on to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And when he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Then after that saith he to his disciples, let us go into Judea again. His disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again. And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth. But I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death. But they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest and sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Verse 43, it says, And uh, when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. And Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. Shall we pray? Father, we thank thee tonight for thy holy word. We thank you tonight that it is inspired, that it is inerrant, that it is infallible, that it is immutable, that it's eternal, that it's a precious word to our souls. Lord, it is everything that we need. It is milk and it is honey. Lord, it is life itself. And we pray tonight that as we open to the pages of your book, that we will allow the scriptures to form our thought and uh, uh, grip our hearts and uh, conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be, uh, to be honest with the Scriptures. Help us to be open to the truths of your Word. And I pray, Father, that you'd help me to teach with clarity, uh, Lord, to present to these dear friends that which I have prepared for and studied uh, for. And uh, Lord, help me to do it in a way that is gracious and kind. Uh, and help me also, Lord, that, to do it also in a way in which we show no respecter of persons. <coughs> because, Lord, we certainly want to uh, hear your truth, whether it sits well with us or not. And so, Father, we just ask your blessing and help upon us this evening. Use this time for thy glory and for the glory of thy dear Son, the Lord Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to start thinking about the acrostic tulip, the famous tulip of Calvinism that was formulated at the Synod of Dort 
after the death of John Calvin, we have to add. And we're going to look at each point along the way and think about whether or not these ideas are sustained by Scripture. And the first of those is the idea of total depravity, which we're actually going to change that a little bit because we're going to talk about total inability, which is an entirely different thing, I think. Uh, In total depravity, we accept that men are born in a sinful condition, that they have a propensity for sin, that they are by nature sinners. Uh, But total depravity or total inability is, it takes that truth and then kind of steps beyond it and uh, takes it to another level, which I think is beyond the bounds of Scripture. So we want to think about this view uh, that men are not just totally depraved, but they are completely incapable in their natural state of believing the gospel of their own volition. That they need God to regenerate them in order for them to believe. In other words, they are born again ever before they call upon the name of the Lord. Now, to me, that's a that's just a, a, just a complete travesty uh, of what the Scripture teaches. <coughs> the idea that you are born again miraculously without any real knowledge within yourself, and then that you're given this impetus, this impulse uh, to call out on the name of the Lord thereafter. And you know, uh, no one I've ever yet heard, given a testimony, Calvinist or otherwise, has, has ever started prior to that moment uh, when they trusted Christ as far as sharing their Chris, Christian experience. And nobody says, well, I was born again, and then I called upon the name of the Lord. Nobody ever testifies that way. They always say, I called upon the name of the Lord, and I was born again. Now, if the Calvinists are right on this point, on this one point, they're right about everything else. And the importance of this particular doctrine to the Calvinist position cannot be underestimated, can't be understated. In the words of the Calvinist theologian, uh, Herman Hanku, uh, he said this, a denial of total depravity leads to a denial of sovereign grace. This in turn leads to a denial of limited atonement and unconditional election. Now, about that, Herman Hanko is absolutely right. Now, let's be clear about this. Uh, We're not questioning the total depravity of man. That's not the issue tonight. All men we accept are totally sinful, hopelessly lost apart from Christ, unable of themselves in terms of their works or human effort uh, to be saved. They must put their trust in Christ in order to be born again and to receive eternal life. All of that is very clear. All men are born with a natural propensity to sin. That's our instinct. And all the race, all the human race, is cursed and condemned in Adam. And that's very clear from the New Testament scriptures. But the Calvinist doctrine goes beyond this. And it teaches not just total depravity, but total inability. In fact, uh, Lorraine Botner in his book uh, on this subject, and of course he is a Calvinist, actually entitles this particular chapter where this doctrine is taught as total inability. So I'm not putting words in anybody's mouth. I'm not, this is not something I came up with. Uh, this is a, a Calvinist terminology. And so the Calvinist 
doesn't just teach total depravity, he teaches total inability. The uh, Westminster Confession of Faith uh, says this, Man by his fall into a state of sin hath wholly uh, lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. Now this idea that man has lost all ability of will so that he's incapable of any response to the gospel other than the rejection of Christ is based largely upon the arguments of rhetoric with a sprinkling of proof texts. Now, let me, let me go on. The doctrine hinges primarily upon one very simple idea. The idea being that man by nature is spiritually dead. And we agree with that. Man is by nature spiritually dead. And then here's the leap of logic that is taken from that statement. And a dead man is unable to respond to the gospel unless God does something miraculous for him. Now that's the logic of Calvinism. A person who's unsaved is spiritually dead and being a dead person, he or she cannot, it is impossible, they are incapable, they are unable to respond to the gospel unless God does something miraculous for them. In other words, he has to rebirth them, regenerate them, and then they're capable of believing the gospel. They're given life now, and they're now able to react to the gospel message. So effectively, you are saved before you understand the gospel message. You are saved before you are ever born again. And I just don't see that in Scripture. So the argument is often presented with a dead body as the point of reference. Botner favorably quotes one Calvinist writer who says this, A corpse cannot act in any way whatever. And that man would be reckoned to have taken leave of his senses who asserted that it could. Oops, sorry. Uh, Therefore... It is, sorry, I lost my, let me start up there. I hit that B button by accident. A corpse cannot act in any way whatever, and the man would be reckoned to have taken leave of his senses who asserted that it could. Therefore, it is surely equally as evident that he is unable to perform any spiritual actions, and thus the doctrine of man's moral inability rests upon strong scriptural evidence. Now, that's a fellow by the name of Warburton. I haven't read where this is. It's a quotation taken out of another book. Uh, I don't know what scriptural evidence Warburton gives, but he certainly in that statement doesn't give any at all. Uh, This is entirely uh, rhetoric. Uh, It is logic. It is persuasion. It is a clever argument, but it's not necessarily a biblical argument. So it sounds perhaps reasonable, but here's the thing. Because something sounds reasonable doesn't mean that it is sound. Just because it sounds reasonable doesn't necessarily mean that it's sound. Now, if you were to ask the average Calvinist, I guess, for an illustration, maybe a a scriptural evidence to support this, he might well take you to John chapter 11. And he will use the death and resurrection of Lazarus 
as an illustration. So the finger is pointed in Lazarus's direction. Lazarus is dead. He is buried. His cause is beyond all hope. And unless Jesus comes, granting him life by calling him from the grave, all is lost for Lazarus. That's the parallel that is made. That's the analogy that is made. Uh, and you can see the logic. And you can hardly disagree with any of that. You cannot say, well, no, Lazarus was able to call himself out of the grave, because that simply isn't the case. He was in a terrible situation, uh, and when you look at it that way. The problem with it is we're being led to believe that the resurrection of Lazarus is an allegory on conversion. Now, I want you to get that. You're being led to believe that the resurrection of Lazarus is an allegory of man's conversion. And the analogy is then pressed upon us that just as a man who is physically dead cannot respond, even, as Warburton says, equally, one who is spiritually dead in sins and trespasses is incapable of any response, and the case is rested there. And, you, you know, you're kind of standing there and you're thinking, well, this seems reasonable. A dead person can't respond. A dead person can't answer. A dead person can't move. A dead person can't hear. A dead person can't speak. A dead person is dead. And the only hope for him would be if God did some miracle for him. So this is a consistent argument made by Calvinists. And there are numerous Calvinists make this argument. Uh, Gordon G. Clark, a dead man cannot exercise faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Arthur Pink, a dead man is utterly incapable of willing anything. Uh, Arthur Custance, a dead man cannot cooperate with an offer of healing. And John Brown, uh, dead sinners or such as are void of spiritual life cannot act spiritually and therefore it is not in their power to get faith. By the way, the Bible nowhere tells us to get faith. It tells us to exercise faith. It tells you to get wisdom, but it doesn't tell you to get faith. Uh, faith is just believing what God says he'll do, to quote the children's chorus. Uh, faith is just accepting the word of God as true. And so the idea that I've got to get faith is foreign to the scripture. But this is the reasoning, these quotations kind of summarize the reasoning of the Calvinist mind. And actually, when you think about this, it comes perilously close to the logic of the Jehovah's Witness movement. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying Calvinists are like Jehovah's Witnesses and they're not saved. That's not what I'm saying at all. But the logic in this particular point is very similar to logic that is applied by the Watchtower Society. Because, you know, even Arthur Custance, who we've quoted here, in supporting this doctrine of inability, proof texts it with a quotation uh, of, uh, from uh, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 9.5, the dead know not anything. The dead know not anything. And any Jehovah's Witness will tell you that after death you're unconscious, that you have no sense of awareness, know that you're, uh, you're annihilated or you're simply not, a, you know, you're, you're just no longer existing. 
And they'll point to this first. The dead know not anything. Now, Ecclesiastes is one of those books. It's a kind of little, it's a dangerous little book to put texts out of because a lot of it is surmisings by Solomon about things that occur under the sun. And so it is true that physically the dead do not know anything. So whilst the Jehovah's Witness connects uh, death, physical death, with eternal death, the Calvinist, he does this. He connects eternal death and equates it with spiritual death. Now, I want you to think about this. Do you realize that this, you know, this reflects badly on the character of God? This reflects badly on the character of God. Because what we have here is a situation where God commands people to do something. To repent and believe the gospel. The Bible says that God commands men everywhere to repent. All men everywhere to repent. So God is commanding people to do something which they are totally incapable of doing. And if they do not do it, they're subsequently punished in hell forever for not doing the very thing that it was impossible for them to do in the first place. That's the logic of Calvinism. In anybody's language, that would be an unrighteous commandment and an unjust punishment. As I said last week, it's like cutting the legs of a man and then asking him to jump a fence and punishing him if he fails to jump the fence. In fact, Lorraine Botner puts it this way, as the bird with a broken wing is free to fly but not able, so the natural man is free to come to God but not able. There's free but not free. That goes back into Greek philosophy. We're now back into Augustinian territory. Not in the Bible now. We're drawing on the polluted waters of Augustine. Free but not free. You've got a free will but not a free will. And this analogy of the bird with a broken wing. It is free to fly. Actually, the bird with a broken wing is not free to fly. It's completely unable to fly. You know, one time uh, we had a little bird, a wood pigeon, landed on our doorstep. One day I was sitting with, at lunch and I was sitting there with my son. He was about 15 at the time. And I was watching this bird wandering around our step. And I thought, why is that bird not flying away? And so I opened, I slid open the patio door and looked at the bird and kind of tried to shoot to, to fly away. And uh, instead of flying away, it just hopped off the step onto the patio beneath. And it became self-evident that the bird was injured that it could not fly. Now suppose if I had then beaten that animal to death, suppose I had you know, kicked it or, or, or slapped it with something or done, you know, done something cruel to it, you would say, well, Pastor, you're a pretty heartless man. You've got this animal that can't fly away and you're, uh, you're taking it out on this poor bird that's sitting on your doorstep for no other reason than the fact that it's incapable of flight. And yet we're to believe that God exacts a far worse cruelty on those creatures made in his own image who are commanded to repent and believe the gospel but are entirely hamstrung by Adam's sin. See, you would judge me negatively if I told you that I had 
in some way punish that bird for its incapability of flight. And yet, people see no correlation between that and the actions of a God who would punish a sinner who's incapable of answering his command. Besides this, it's completely missing the true meaning of the word dead or death. You ask any Calvinist what death means, I expect you'll get a very deep theological, very convoluted answer, I should imagine. But the answer is very simple. What is death? That's a straight question that everybody ought to ask. And the simple answer is, death is, one word, separation. That's what death is. Death is separation. And separation comes in three forms. Death comes in three forms. According to the scriptures, you have physical death. So you've got physical separation of the spirit from the body. Okay? So James talks about that in James chapter 2 and verse 26 when he simply states, for as the body without the spirit is dead. So there's the definition biblically. Now, this is not a dictionary definition. This is a theological definition. Physically, separation of spirit from the body is death. And James says so. The body without the spirit is dead. In fact, science says so because, you know, the word for spirit is the word psyche. And that's the word that gives you psychiatry, psychology, anything to do with the mind. And doctors will tell you that once the mind is gone, once the psyche has left the body, there is nothing they can do for you. People say, well, I died in an operating table. Your heart stopped, but your spirit did not leave your body. That just simply didn't happen, okay? You may have dreamt something, thought something, saw something, but that's not what happened. Because once the spirit leaves the body, you're physically dead, and there's no coming back. That's physical death. Spiritual death, well, spiritually, death, spiritual death is separation of the soul and the spirit from God. And you read about that in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2, where Paul says, um, verse 1 it should be, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wrong reference. Verse 1, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Well, clearly they were not physically dead because he's writing to a church full of living people. So he has to be speaking about some other form of death. And he's talking about spiritual death. And he's saying that they were separated from God. And he goes on down the text and says how they were aliens. What's an alien? An alien is someone who's a stranger, someone who's separated in some way. Aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. So that's the language of the Bible. And then you have eternal death. And that's eternal separation of the whole person from God forever. Hence you read in Romans 6, 23, well-known verse, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is is eternal life. And you have a statement of contrast there. The wages of sin contrasted with the gift of God. The gift of God is life eternal. The wages of sin is death eternal. That's what death is. Now, all error rides on the back of truth. I want you to get that this evening. Uh, All error, no matter what error it is, it all rides on the back of of truth, you know, if you if you engage with a, a cultist, a Mormon, a Jehovah's Witness, somebody like that, 
Very often at the beginning of the conversation, what they will share with you is true. They'll share something with you that's true. And then as the conversation proceeds, suddenly they go off on a tangent or they throw something into the mix that corrupts the truth, that becomes a lie. And, uh, you know, and they try to build their case from there on outward. So it is true. Here's the truth in this particular doctrine. It is true that the physically dead know nothing at all of what is going on in the world around them. That is true. Absolutely true. And they are physically unresponsive and totally incapable of reaction to anything. Okay? So there's nothing that person can do physically. No matter how you appeal to them, no matter how you plead with them, no matter how you try to awake their senses, you know, you could try tickling them, you could try giving them smelling salts, whatever, they're not going to respond. They are physically dead and they have no awareness of the physical world around them. And it's true, this is another truth, that an unsaved man needs the illumination of God's Spirit combined with the convicting power of the Holy Ghost to recognize his need. So, you know, this is where I can preach till I'm blue in the face, but if the Spirit of God doesn't deal with the soul of a person and illuminate them to the truth and convict them of their sin, well, all the preaching in the world isn't going to make a difference to them. So there's truth uh, in that. Uh, but it's not true that having been so convicted, this person is incapable of response to the gospel, that he cannot be reasoned with, that he cannot exercise of his own volition a decision to just trust Christ, and therefore he must be born again before he's ever truly born again, or ever believes, if that makes more sense. So, what about Lazarus? Well, was Lazarus dead? There's no question about it. Jesus said, right there in verse 14, uh, plainly, Lazarus is dead. Now, we need to ask ourselves a couple of questions about Lazarus. First question, was Lazarus spiritually dead? Was he spiritually dead? We know he was physically dead. But was he spiritually dead? Second question, was Lazarus a believer or an unbeliever? Well, it's quite evident that he was a believer. Uh, look at verse 11. Jesus refers to him as our friend Lazarus. These things saith he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus, Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of his sleep. Verse 25, he's referenced as a believer. Verse 25, Jesus said unto her, unto Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead. Well, what was Lazarus? He was dead. Who's Jesus talking about? He's talking to Martha about her brother. He says, he that believeth in me, though he were dead dead. We were dead, yet shall he live. Now, the Calvinists, our Calvinist friends are off to a very bad start with this passage because the subject in question 
is not an unbeliever, but a believer. And he's not someone who is subject to spiritual death, but subject to physical death. In fact, four times in this passage, Lazarus is said either to be loved by Jesus or to be Jesus' friend. Uh, If you look, uh, for example, in verse 3, he says, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And I love how that's put. He loved them individually, each one separately and personally. He loved Martha and he loved Mary and he loved Lazarus. We just read verse 11, our friend Lazarus is sick. Verse 36, then said the Jews, behold how he loved him. Now, in Calvinist theology, God only loves his own. So you would have to accept that he's a believer. You could not say he's an unbeliever. He's a believer. So this passage has something to do with believers rather than something to do with the conversion of unbelievers. Secondly, we need to ask ourselves, well, what is the drift of the passage? What's the context of the passage? What's the theme of this particular chapter? You know, these events come close toward the end of Jesus' ministry. Uh, They happen just a a few days before his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And then we know that approximately a week after that, he is crucified, buried, and risen again. So at this point in John chapter 11, you're just over a week or so away from the Lord's own resurrection. So this chapter preempts the Savior's own resurrection and clearly speaks about the physical resurrection of believers and of their body, of our hope in Christ. So what you have at the outset of this story is a group of disciples who are fearful of death. News comes, verse uh, verse 3, that Lazarus is sick. Jesus takes the decision that they should uh, go to him. Uh, And uh, verse uh, verse, uh, 7 He says, then after that, he saith to his disciples, let us go into Judea again. His disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, put thee to death, and goest thou thither again. So they were intimidated by the prospect of going to Judea. They were afraid to go to Judea because they thought if they went into Judea, they would be subject to a stoning. They would be put to death. Look at verse 16. When the decision is finally taken to go, then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now that's not a statement of courage and bravado by Thomas. That is a rather sarcastic statement. He says it's not enough that he's going to go up there and die, but let's all go up and we can all die together. They have no desire to go to Judea. They have no desire to go to Bethany. They have no desire to visit Nazareth either in in bed or certainly not in the tomb. They have no desire because they see threat in that movement. They see threat in going there. And so they're reluctant to follow the Savior into Bethany. Then later we find not only that we have these disciples who were living in fear of death, But we have these two women who had lost all hope because of the consequence of their brother's death. Look in verse 17. 
Then when Jesus came, he found that he, Lazarus, had lain in the grave four days already. Now, that's important that you underline that four days because four days in Jewish culture is very significant. And the fourth day, the body is said to enter into corruption. So the idea in the minds of Lazarus' sisters is this. If Jesus had come on the first day, second day, or third day after their brother's death, he could have been called out of the grave intact. But by the fourth day, the body is beginning to rot. And they see no reason or no hope or no purpose in calling a rotting body out of the grave. That's the significance of the four days. They thought there was no hope for their brother. Look at verse 21. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. She scolds him for taking his time in coming. She rebukes him for not being there prior to the fourth day. And Mary had the same complaint. Look in verse 32. Then was, when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. So she says the same thing. Our case is hopeless. No point in you coming now. Bit late now, after four days. The body's rotten. It stinks. There's no hope. What were they missing? What were they misunderstanding? What were they lacking? Salvation? No. They were lacking resurrection truth. They had no grasp on the power of the resurrection and the ability of Christ to raise the dead. So, Let's go to verse 24. Martha said unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Speaking of Lazarus and other believers. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And notice the challenge he makes to her. Believest thou this? Believest thou this? Now, this passage has nothing to do with the salvation of believers. Absolutely nothing to do with the salvation of Lazarus uh, or his supposed inability to believe. Its purpose is to direct the hearts of believers toward resurrection truth. Now, let's go down to verse 41. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. Now here's the question. For whose benefit was this miracle performed? Was it performed for Lazarus' benefit? No, not necessarily. It was certainly not for his salvation, for as we've seen, he's already a friend of the Lord's, loved by the Lord's, a believer in the Lord. Lazarus was a saved man. Lazarus was in paradise. Think about that. He's in paradise. 
This is like you and I dying, going through all of the pains of death, getting into heaven, and then the Lord coming along to our mansion, knocking on the door and saying, I got bad news for you. You got to go back to earth and die all over again. <laughs> you say, you wouldn't be pleased, would you? <laughs> you say, well, that's, that's great. <laughs> this is not good news for Lazarus. It's not done for Lazarus's benefit. Lazarus is as happy as he could ever have been at this point. Out of his suffering, out of his pain, in paradise, in Abraham's bosom, surrounded by the saints, enjoying the bliss of paradise. So it's not done for Lazarus's benefit. But we read there in verse 42, it was done for, the, for the, uh, the benefit of the people which stood by. Its purpose was to convince all of those in unbelief around who were, uh, who were unconvinced or who were uncertain of the power of Christ to raise the dead. This passage has absolutely nothing to do with Lazarus' salvation. And yet Calvinists come back to it again and again and again to make the point for total inability. Now, let's look at another story. And let's consider Luke chapter 15. And we'll have an evaluation. Luke chapter 15. And I'm not going to read the whole text here. You don't need me to do that. I'm sure you know this story well. And if you don't know it well, just go home and read it for yourself. It's, it's, a, it's a very well-known story. Even unsaved people would largely be familiar with this story. It's the parable of the prodigal son. In Luke chapter 15, verse 11 through 13, let's have a, have a look there. It says, And he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. Now, you know how the story pans out. You know what happens. The boy ends up coming to the end of himself, and he goes home to his father. Now, let's begin by asking ourselves, why did Jesus tell this story? What was the point of this parable? What was he driving at? Well, thankfully, we don't have to grasp in the dark for that because we're told exactly why. If you notice verse 2, uh, it says, And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And he spake this parable unto them, saying, and he gives them not one but three uh, parables, effectively. Uh, he talks to them about uh, the lost coin. The lost coin is illustrative of how the Holy Spirit seeks the sinner. He talks about the lost son, the lost sheep, rather. That's how the, how the son seeks out the sinner. And he talks to them about the lost son, and that's how the father seeks out the sinner. And the point is that the trying God is concerned for sinners. He's concerned uh, for those who are lost, and hence he's willing to receive them and to eat with them. Each parable is telling us how God works with sinners. So we're on much firmer ground here if we want to discuss the matter of salvation and of a lost sinner and how he's saved than we are with the account of Lazarus's resurrection. Now, let me ask you a question. Answer the question. Was the prodigal son dead? No. Not physically. <laughs> Not physically. <laughs> <laughs> he, 
He was not physically dead. But was he dead? Twice in the passage, it says he was dead. Look at this. The father says, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they began to be merry. In verse 32, he rebukes the brother. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Now, if he is dead, according to Calvinistic theology, the prodigal son is incapable of all response. Am I right? That's the, that's the thought. If he's dead, and that's what it says, not once but twice, he was dead. He's incapable of all response. He cannot exercise volition. He cannot accept the grace of the Father. He cannot rely on the love of his Father. Now, Perhaps the father was speaking metaphorically when he said, for this my son was dead. Maybe he was saying, well, he's dead to me. You know, sometimes people say, that person's dead to me. They don't mean that they're dead physically. They mean that I have nothing more to do with them. They're separated, actually, is what they're saying. They're separated from me uh, for good. Uh, Maybe he was saying that. But this isn't how this story plays out. This father loves his son. He's not rejecting him. He's not casting him away. He's watching out for his return. And when he returns, he celebrates with great gusto. He rejoices in the reunion. So how can the prodigal be described twice as dead? Remember that the word theologically defined means separated. For this my son was separated from me. That's the idea. He had left and gone into a far country. He was dead. He was separated from me. And in the story, the son becomes estranged from the family home and estranged from his father's love. Now, was the dead son then able to work through his predicament? Remember now, this is portraying a lost person. That's the context. The Pharisee said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. That was the criticism. This is why Jesus told the parable. He's explaining how God deals with lost sinners. Well, was this dead son unable to work through his problems? Well, let's have a look. Verses 17 through 19. It says, and when he came to himself, he said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Now, he was dead. We read it twice. But he was not incapable of response. He was not incapable of figuring out his need. Notice he used reason. It says, when he came to himself, verse 17, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to despair, and I perish with hunger? He reasoned his problem through. 
Lost people can be reasoned with. And we'll see this as we go further into the study. They can be persuaded. They can be convinced. They can be reasoned with. And he used that reason and he exercised volition. Look at verse 18. What do the first two words say? I will. That's volition. I will arise. I will arise. And I will go. And I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. You see, he's exercising volition. Wait a minute. He's dead. How can he be? How can he have a will? Because death doesn't mean inactivity unless you're a Jehovah's Witness. Death means separation. He says, I will, I will arise, and I will say, and I will go. And then in verse 19, he says, I'll cry out. I will say, I am no more worthy to be called thy son. And that's exactly what he does in verse 21. He comes to the Father and he says, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Now this parable again is told specifically to highlight how the God, the Father, loves dead sinners, and yet there is not a whiff of inability about the prodigal son. Not a whiff. Let me move one more chapter and wrap this up with you. Actually, you know what? I'm going to stop there. I'll leave you in suspense. We'll go into the one more chapter next week because if I get into the one more chapter, I'll go too long. We'll hold it right there. Hold the boat right there and we'll look at the next chapter next week.